Genesis chapter 17 for our Bible study. And let's again just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to uh, anoint His Word, meet with us as He does. Father, we just thank You so much for, um, just for the, the truth. And we know, Lord, that, that uh, it's like a lion in a cage. It doesn't need to defend itself, and, or it doesn't need us to defend it. it. It speaks for itself. And so we just pray that tonight you would uh, let your word speak. Let your spirit come upon us and upon it, Lord. And I pray that you would give me clarity to be able to communicate and speak forth these things, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would open our understanding, that we would hear your voice in it and has it as it pertains to each of us, Lord, for our lives. So please help us tonight. We love you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. And it says that when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abram, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. And we'll move on from there uh, as we pass into that point. As we come to chapter 17, it's been 13 years since the events that we read in uh, chapter 16 in our study last time together where uh, Sarai came to Abram and uh, kind of laid out before him this plan to, um, for him to, to get together with her maidservant and they would have a child by her and they came up with this whole scheme. It's been 13 years now uh, since that whole episode took place and it's been 24 years since the beginning of God's call upon Abram's life. And so God had called Abram out of the land of Babylon. He had moved him now into the land of Canaan, which is modern day Israel. Abram's been growing in the Lord now for 24 years, experiencing things, uh, making mistakes, falling and then getting back up again, growing closer to the Lord, seeing victories in his life, uh, making messes, but then coming back. And just like us, he's been growing for 24 years in the Lord. And now at this point, when he's 99 years old, we're told that the Lord comes to him, and he comes to him with one express purpose or intent, and that is to establish or to confirm 
now the covenant or the promises that God has been making to Abram all along. And this entire chapter, the entirety of chapter 17, concerns this covenant that God, this promise or this contract that God is making with Abram uh, now. And his God's desire is to officially confirm this covenant or this promise that he's made and to lay it out in writing before Abram. And, and essentially, this chapter has two sections to it, this covenant. Uh, and it divides very nicely just in the text. The part where God says, as for me, that he says there um, right at the beginning of verse Four, and that's all the things that God is going to do, the promises that he's going to keep, his side of the covenant or the contract. And then the other half begins in verse 9 where God says to Abram, he says that you shall keep my covenant. If you have a New King James Version, it actually says the words, as for you. So the first half is, as for me, God says. And then the second half is, as for for you. And so God's part in keeping the covenant is the first part of things. And then Abraham's part of consecration is the other part of it. And so God giving to Abram this contract now, this covenant. And it begins for us in verse 1 with what we would call in the modern language uh, the preconditions of the covenant. Now, all of us that, that are um, abreast of political uh, situations and, and tensions that happen between nations, we all know what preconditions are. And that is that when two parties are going to come to the table and try to forge some kind of agreement or some, some terms of peace uh, to, to negotiate terms wherein both sides can operate and move forward, uh, oftentimes there are preconditions things that have to be agreed upon before a talk can even pre or resume or, or can, you know, come together in order to, to make some kind of a contract or some kind of a treaty. Uh, you'll recall a couple of years ago when we were, we were, were struggling with uh, Iran and their nuclear uh, program and, and the ambitions that they had on things. And there was uh, kind of an impasse and there was tension. What's going to happen? You know, because we didn't want them developing nuclear things and they didn't want us telling them what to do. And there, there was kind of a collision course happening. And so there was a call for peace talks, that there has to be some agreement negotiated. But there were preconditions. And the preconditions were that we said to them that you must halt all nuclear development activity until we come to an agreement. And because Iran wouldn't submit to those preconditions, the talks never happened. And so oftentimes when there are uh, negotiations to be made, there are first of all preconditions that have to be met. And so God comes to Abram now, wanting to enter into covenant with him, and before he even gives to Abram what this covenant is, and establishes or confirms the covenant, he gives to Abram, first of all, the preconditions. And those preconditions are three, and they're all given to us there in verse 1. They are, first of all, submission, secondarily, relationship, and thirdly, commitment. The first there being submission, where God simply comes to Abram and he introduces himself in a way wherein God has never been known previously in the history of God in the Bible, and that is as Almighty God, or El Shaddai uh, in the Hebrew. He comes to him and he says, I am the Almighty God. First time God 
referred to in this way or called this. And what it literally means is that he is the almighty or the omnipotent God. And oftentimes you'll hear that word omnipotent connected to our God. And what it literally means is all-powerful. And that is that he can do all things. He is completely sufficient in and of himself and that he needs absolutely no help from anyone else to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. And the first thing that Abram is faced with in this encounter with God after 13 years of silence is that God comes to him and God says, I am completely capable in and of myself to do everything that I set forth to do, and I can do it without any help from any outside entity. And this is probably somewhat of a comfort to Abram to hear this, but it is also a little bit of a rebuke. Because the last thing that Abraham did in his life is that he tried to help God with this ingenious plan with Hagar and bringing forth Ishmael and trying to help God along in keeping his promises. But what God is seeking to communicate to Abram at this junction is that, Abram, we're about to move forward. And the things that I have purposed for your life, the things that I've promised you, and the things that I'm going to do through you and do for you, I am completely capable in and of myself of bringing those things to bear, and I don't need any help or input from you at all whatsoever. What I need from you, Abram, is I need your submission. And I need your trust. And I need you to walk with me. And I need you to believe that I'm going to accomplish the things that I set forth to do. And you're going to be a part of this, but you're not going to be the one who does these things. I'm the Almighty God that's going to do these things. And so precondition number one is submission on the part of Abram. The second thing is relationship. God says to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me. And the idea, of course, we've talked about this, behind the walk are the steps that we take in our life. The walk in the Bible symbolizes our journey through this world, the walk that we take through this world. And so for God to say, walk before me, what God is saying is that I want you to walk in my presence. I want you to walk in my leading. I want you to live in a consistent awareness of my presence with you. And I want your relationship with me and our communion to be consistent, constant, and always. Abram, I can't have you in and out of my presence. I can't have you walking with me in the good seasons or at some times, but then deciding at other times that it's too difficult. And then you kind of withdraw or move away or do your own thing for a while that if I'm going to be able to bring the things to bear in your life that I want to bring, then there has to be a relationship that is steady and constant. And so I need for you to walk before me, Abram. And relationship is a precondition of these things that are going to happen. What amazes me about this is that God is the initiator. See, I could totally understand if Abraham were to come to God and say to God, God, I need you close to me in my life. That makes sense to me, because I know what, it, what it's like to try to, to live this life apart from God. I need God close to me. But the remarkable thing in this is that it's not Abraham, but it's God who initiates. God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I want you walking with me. I want you to walk in fellowship with me. That's amazing, isn't it? Any of us who are parents understand that dynamic. We long for the day 
when our kids will grow to the place wherein no longer are we their parent and they're our child, though that dynamic kind of always exists. But we long for the day when we have fellowship with our kids and they're grown up, they're mature adults, and they're complete in their, uh, you know, their development. This past Monday, we were able to take the family up to Catamount and ski. We try to do that once a year, which is a challenge enough in and of itself, both to find the time and the finances to, I mean, you basically have to take out a mortgage on your house, you know, to do that, unless you own stuff, you know, and kids grow too quick for that, you know, and the whole thing. And so we went up there, and my four-year-old, you know, for the first time is on something other than just feet. And so we put him on a couple of skis, and we took him up the, you know, the bunny hill, and that became kind of a time investment on, on our part, you know, to, to, to see him through the day on things. And, and it was a really blessed time, and it was amazing to watch him do it. But as we approached the mountain, and we could see the early uh, arrivers making their way down the freshly groomed slopes, uh, we saw Noah with widened eyes looking up, and he said, I want to do that today, Dad. And as we purchased their lift tickets, and, you know, he could kind of hear that he was only getting a carpet pass, you know, meaning that he's only going to be on the, the, the learner's slope. He, he asked, he said, Dad, am I going to get to ride the big lifts today? And I said, probably not, son, you know. But it was a worthy investment to take the time with him on that bunny hill and to see by the end of the day him making it down by himself and stopping by himself and, you know, and the whole thing. But our desire in investing that time was not because we simply always want to be his parents supervising him on the bunny hill. But we're willing to expend what it takes to see him one day with us on the lift and fellowshipping with him going down the slopes together as adults. And that's what God essentially is saying to Abraham. Here he's saying, walk before me for 24 years now you've been in my presence. You've been growing up. You've been learning how to talk to to me, learning how to draw from me, learning how to fight the battles that I've laid before you. And my supreme desire in calling you and in working with you and in consistently restoring you is to bring you to a place where you and I have such a fellowship, where no longer is it just parent and child or master and servant, but it's as Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And it's the desire of our God that we would walk with him in that type of a relationship, not forsaking the fear of him, not ever neglecting his place as father and God in our lives, but where we walk with him in relationship. It's a precondition of all that God wants to do in our lives as it was for Abram. Relationship. And then thirdly, Commitment. Notice what God says to Abram. He says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now something happens inside of us when we read those words and we say perfection. God, but that's such an impossibility that you would call us to perfection. The word means to be complete. The word means to be mature. And the word means, as it implies, it means that we're to strive for perfection. Now, it would be inconsistent for God to demand or ask for or want or seek for less than that within our lives, wouldn't it? I mean, he's God and he's the perfect God. And it's consistent with his character to demand or require or ask of us perfection. In fact, I think it would be a little bit 
slipshod if God were to come to us and say, walk before me and be mediocre. Walk before me and compromise and just try your best even though you're going to fall flat on your face all the time. No, God looks at Abram and he says, Abram, what I want from you as a precondition to all that I'm going to do in your life is I want you to keep looking at the top of the mountain and say, one day I'm going to ski from there with expert form. And what God is saying essentially to Abram is that, Abram, I'm going to do amazing things in your life and I'm capable of doing all those things. But what I need for you is to keep your eyes on the prize and to never settle for less than my best for you. And that call to Abram is exactly the same as it is for us. Yes, I know that we will never reach perfection on this side of eternity. And God knows that we're never going to reach perfection on this side of eternity. But the day you and I settle for where we are and say, God, I've come far enough, I'm better than most other people, and therefore I no longer need to grow, is the day that we cut God short in all that he wants to do in, through, and for our lives. And what God is saying to Abram is he's saying, Abram, I know you're never going to be perfect, and he never will. But I want you to constantly strive to be more like me and to be more in the center of my will. It's the same spirit that the Apostle Paul had in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, I do not count myself to have arrived or to have obtained, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If by some chance I might apprehend or attain that for which I have been called, he said, I press on. And that's the desire of God for every one of us. And the preconditions of God's covenant with Abraham is, Abram, you need to know that I am able. You need to be in relationship and in harmony with me. And you need to be committed to what I want to do within your life. Because the promises that I'm about to make to you are radical promises. They're beyond your ability to perform or to lead yourself into. And unless you're walking with me, unless your eyes are on me, these things are never going to happen. Why are there preconditions on a promise that God is going to make, a covenant that He Himself is going to fulfill. Because without submission, relationship, and Abraham's commitment to what God wants to do, he will never realize what it is that God wants for him. And God wants this for him. Amazingly, we see ourselves through the lens of all of it. And so what is the covenant? What is it that God promises Abram? It's given to us in verses 2 through 8, as we read, where God says, as for me, my covenant is with you. Now, I want you to notice concerning this covenant, as we read in these verses, first of all, to whom the covenant is made. You'll notice in verses 4 and 5 that God changes Abram's name. As he tells him the very first thing there in part of the covenant, in verse 4, he says, that you will be a father of many nations... Therefore, neither shall your name any more be called Abram, which means simply exalted father, but thy name shall be Abraham, which means father of many nations, for, God said, because a father of many nations have I made thee. Now, God changes Abram's name to reflect the plan that God has for his life, but he does it in a most interesting way. He does it by simply adding the the H, the fifth letter of the Hebrew al alphabet, right in the middle of God's name. And the amazing thing about that simple addition that changes the meaning of his name 
it also changes the dynamic of his life. The or in the Hebrew language is literally the breath. What he does is that he adds the breath to Abram's life. And the reason that's so significant is because that the Hebrew word for breath is ruach. Sorry, ruach. And it's translated spirit. And it's an amazing thing that God does here for Abram. What he literally does is he puts the spirit in Abram's name, thus changing it to Abraham. God interjects himself into the very identity of Abraham. There's a new dynamic of experience in Abram's life from this point forward. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 that Abram was a recipient of the Spirit of God. It says that we might receive the promise of the Spirit just like Abraham did through faith. Abraham receives a dynamic of God's Spirit in his life at this juncture, and it adds something to him. What amazes me about this is that it happens 24 years into Abram's walk with God. He's already saved. His name is already written in heaven, but at this point now, as God wants to bring Abram deeper, there's a greater element, experience, and expression of God's Spirit that's imparted into his life. The reason I think that's so important, as we talk about who this covenant is made with, is that it's made with a man who's filled with the Spirit of God. And that applies directly to you and I. Because God desires that His Spirit be in us and that we ever be growing and deepening in our experience and expression of His presence and Spirit within our lives. Jesus promised that if He were to go away, He said that the Spirit will come. And He said that the Spirit will do two things in us. Number one, it will be a helper because it will be Jesus literally living inside of us in fellowship with us but that he would also provide power for us that we might live out the life that he calls us to live. So the experience of God's Spirit in the life of his people is God's fellowship with us, our ability to walk with him, and God's power through us, giving us the ability to live out the things that he calls us into. That's something that God has for every one of us. He does it in Abraham at this point, and he desires to do it in us as well. And as we seek to walk in God's covenant that he has with us, it is essential that we be filled with the Spirit of God and that that filling be ever-deepening, that we be coming into new depths and new experiences of his person and of his power walking with us and working through us in the way that he does. How is the Spirit received by a Christian in the modern day? First of all, by salvation. As we come into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, He gives us the first fruits of His Spirit. But we're deepened and we receive more of Him by the asking. Jesus said, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? And as we surrender more of our lives and we ask Him for more of His, He responds in the affirmative. He gives us more of Himself as we ask Him. And as we have more of him, his promise is more realized within our life. What's happening here for Abram is that God is taking greater ownership of Abram's very identity. He's inserting himself in his very name. Isn't it amazing to you? It's amazing to me that God desires to place himself in us. 
Think about that. The Bible even says that angels look into these things and they're amazed with it. It blows their mind because they see his holiness and know it in ways that we don't. And they also see our wretchedness in ways that we don't understand or comprehend. And so they see the perfect, pure holiness wanting to be in the life of something so defiled. And they see God willing to make that happen. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says that in him is love personified. And he desires to make that a part of what we are. And we're fools to say, God, well, I have the first fruits I don't want anymore. Would that God would change our name and he would put his breath in it more and more. Well, God makes this promise to a spirit-filled man. Well, what is the promise? It tells us in verses 6 through 8. It tells us four things, essentially, that God promises Abraham. I want you to notice that it says, when God says that my, my, I'm going to make my covenant, that it is with you. He says... Um, in verse 4, he says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Notice this, it says, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. Watch this. For I, or for a father of many nations, have I made you. Do you see that it's in the past tense? That when God makes a promise as Almighty God, he is completely capable of bringing that promise to pass in the life without any help. God says, it's already done. I have already made you a father of nations, even though you haven't even had a son as yet. But God gives to him now the, the terms, or not the terms, but the blessings of this covenant, and they are four. And they break down into four areas. Um, each have an application to us. First of all is purpose. Second of all is experience. Third of all is adoption or inheritance. And fourthly is access or intimacy. Notice what God promises to Abram. Abraham at this point. Now I'm going to still be confused even though his name has changed. He says, first of all, that a father of many nations have I made you. That nations and kings of nations are going to come out of you. That's the first promise that God makes to Abram. And it's under the heading of the purpose that God has for Abram's life. God's plan for this man in this time, in this context, is that he would be the father of many nations and that kings of nations would come from his loins. And what this speaks of, this purpose of God for Abram, is the individual calling that God has upon the lives of his people. And what I want you to understand in the context of this tonight is that God has an individual purpose and plan for each one of his people. If you're sitting here tonight, there is a reason that God made you, the way that he made you, in the time that he made you, and there's a purpose for that life that he's given to you. God has something for every one of us. And it's very specific. It's not generic wherein, okay, well, God's just looking for something and so he's just handing out little things. But no, God has something for you the same way that he did for Abram. And the very first thing that he sets before him is that, Abram, I have a plan for you, and I'm going to move you in that plan and in that purpose that I have for your life. God has something for each of us. The second promise that God makes to Abram under this covenant is a promise that he will be fruitful and that he'll be exceedingly fruitful. You'll notice those words there in the first verses of his promise. In verse 2, God said, I will multiply you exceedingly and in verse 6, he says that I will make you exceeding fruitful. And what this speaks of 
And Abram's relationship with God is his experience. That your life is going to be that experiencing my fruitfulness and my abundance. You're going to have an abundant life. The New Testament counterpart to the fruitfulness that God promises is what we read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Where the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit, but all of these things are invisible entities. I can't take love and physically show you, well, this is love, or this is joy. It's not something that's tangible, but it's an experience, an expression of something that's happening on the inside. And what God is saying to Abram is that part of my covenant with you is that you're going to experience my rejoicing. You're going to experience my fruitfulness and the quality of life. And that's what God says to us. Not only do I have a plan for you that's specific to you, but my will for your life is that you enjoy the life that you have. That the fruit of my spirit is being born forth in your life and experienced by you. It's my desire for you that your spiritual state of being is that you're enjoying your life. The third heading of promise that God gives to him is inheritance or adoption. And he tells him that I'm going to give you this land. That the land of Canaan that you are now dwelling in, I have given it to you and I have given it to your descendants after you. Now, in the New Testament, the land or the promised land speaks of the general promises of God that he has given to us in his word. The inheritance that he has given to us because of the adoption that we've received as being a part of his family. You and I, because of who we are as Christians are entitled to all that God has laid before, before us in the richness of his land, this life that he has called us into. That's what the promised land represents for you and I. Because we've been adopted, we experience the inheritance of having what's his. What does that mean? It means that we're called to enjoy and walk in all the promises that God has laid out in a generic or general sense. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. And so therefore, we're to experience his peace. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive that your joy might be full. And so therefore, it is our birthright and our inheritance that we have a vibrant prayer life and that we're experiencing God in the asking and receiving of walking with him. Jesus said, my sheep, that's general, that's all of us. He said, they hear my voice. And so God's will for us is that we hear his voice. And there are literally hundreds of promises that God has laid out for you and I that are our birthright to enjoy. The sad thing is how little of it much of us possess. And that's not because God is slack concerning his promise. It's because we refuse to lay hold of it in faith. I knew a couple of years ago that live about 30 miles from here that adopted a child from Russia. And they adopted her as just an infant. She was a baby. She knew absolutely nothing. She had no life there at all before being adopted by her parents here in the States. And she was brought in, and they gave her her room, and they lived in a massive house, and they were pretty well off, a good situation. And so they gave her her room, and they began raising this child. And when she was about two or three years old, a strange thing started happening. They started finding food from the pantry and the refrigerator hidden in her bedroom. 
tucked into the drawers between the sheets of the bed, between the mattress and the, you know, the, the sideboard of it and, and the whole thing. And it was just a smell. And there was this constant problem wherein it was just instinctive in her to take the little dribs and drabs that she could find around the house and hide them in her room because she was afraid there wouldn't be provisions for later. It was just something that was in her from being from that part of the world and having the, the background that, who knows, how does that even happen, you know, in the whole thing. But it's amazing that that happens with Christians all the time. We take dribs and drabs and we hide little things here and there and we fail to take God at His word and really enjoin Him in the promise that He's given and live in the abundant life that He's called us into. Listen, if He's laid out promises in the promised land of His word, they're for the taking, they're for us. The fourth thing that God promises to Abram at the end of the passage is he said he promises that he's going to be his God, that there's access to him and intimacy for or with God that is there for Abram. And he says that I'm going to be your God. And that's an amazing thing to consider. There is a difference between a God and a God. And I'm not talking about the uppercase G and the lowercase G, but I'm talking about a God that we profess and a God that we worship. There's a difference between those two things. A God that we profess is a God that we say, well, yeah, well, he's God, or he's my God. And we kind of give him that place, like my teacher for the year is Mrs. Smith. Well, my God for this life is Jehovah God, Elohim, El Shaddai, the God of the Bible. What we've done is we've professed and we've made him God. But there's a difference between professing something or someone as God and actually worshiping that someone as God. And here's the difference. Is that the true God in the life of any person is the thing or the one that is their highest affection. The thing that I worship is my God. The thing that has my affection and my devotion. The thing that I am the most committed to. The thing that captivates me the most the thing that I love the most, that is actually my God. I might profess that, no, 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 God is my God. But in practice or in reality, I might be serving or worshiping something totally different. And what God is promising to Abraham here is not that I'm simply going to hold the title. Oh, oh, it will be my nation and they will say, Jehovah is our God. But what he's promising is something so much deeper than that. What he's saying to Abram is he's saying, I'm going to become such a part of your life. And you're going to know me in such a real and living way that your heart is going to be so attached to me that I'm actually going to become the thing that you favor the most. The default expression of your love and of your life is going to be me. The thing that you desire and crave the most, the thing that you want the most is going to be me. The thing that's going to permeate and overtake every thought and desire and affection and get into every part of your life is going to be me. I am going to be your God, Abram, in truth and in reality and not simply in profession. That's an amazing thing to think that God, Almighty God, who can do all things, knows how to reveal himself to us in such a way that that actually happens. Because many of us know of him in the way and even profess of him in the way where we say, well, yes, he is my God. But under the surface, there's a totally different reality between him actually being that affection and what it is that we actually worship and serve. 
But for Abram, the promise was that I'm going to be your God. And that promise is given to us just the same. That we have access to him in such a way wherein he will be our God. These are amazing promises to consider. And I want you to think of them just very simply in the context of your own life. God has a purpose for you. God has an experience that he wants you to have of his joy that you would enjoy your life. God has given you an inheritance and adoption whereby his promises are your entitlement. And God is going to make himself the highest affection in our lives as we live. Those are amazing promises of God. And he says, I'm going to bring it to pass. Now, the strength of these promises lies in the person who's making them. Right? I mean, if someone comes to you and they make a promise, the promise that they're making is only as weighty as the character of the promiser. And if their character is shady, then you don't know if you can trust in the promise. But when the promiser, the one who's making the covenant, is God, then you know that you can stand upon the things that are being spoken. God's character vouches for the things that he promises that he's going to do. It's an amazing contrast that exists here in this passage between Abram's frailty and God's sovereignty. Abram's 99 years old. And he is completely incapable at this point in his life of bringing even the least of these things to bear upon himself. He can do nothing on his own. And God has purposefully waited until that would be the case to bring these promises into Abram's life. He can do nothing. And yet in the context of Abram's total impotence and incompetence, God comes and he says, these are the things that I am going to do. Seven times in this passage, God says, I will. He doesn't say, I will and you'll help. He says, I am going to do these things. Fourteen times God says it in the entirety of the chapter. But the promise lies in the character of the promiser. And therefore, these things are absolute because God's the one that says it. And so God lays these things out, this promise, this covenant confirmed to Abram that very much has a reflection in the experience of you and I as New Testament Christians. Well, the second half of things is now Abram's consecration. The preconditions have been agreed to. We know that because Abram fell on his face and worshipped. But now God says, Abram, as for you, and we read on in the chapter, notice what God says, verse 9. He says, you shall keep my covenant, therefore you and your seed after you in their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. What? And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. Yes, I did hear you correctly, God. And it shall be a token or a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man whose uh, child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Oh, you're serious about this. Not only did I hear you correctly <laughs> in what you're asking me to do, but you are absolutely very serious about the thing that you're saying here. 
Abram's consecration is to be sealed with the sign of circumcision in his flesh for himself and for his descendants. Now, I don't have to illustrate for you or explain to you, I hope, exactly what circumcision is. And if you are here and you absolutely do not know what it is, Google it. But don't hit the images tab on your Google search. But what circumcision literally is, is the removal of a piece of the flesh in a secret place as a visible mark of an inward consecration to God. Now, why in the world would God ask this of Abraham? Of all the things that God could say to Abram for him to do, why is it that this is the expression? Why is it? It's because of what it symbolizes. Circumcision was the cutting away or the cutting off or the removal of the flesh in a secret place. And what God is saying is that part of my work in your life, an imperative for that is the cutting away of your flesh. What does that mean, the cutting away of the flesh? The Bible teaches that man is made in the image of God. God is a three-part being. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet those three are one. And you and I, made in him, His image, we are also three-part beings. We are spirit, soul, and body. The spirit of man being the invisible essence of what we are, the part of us that communes with and relates to God. The mind of man, or the soul of man, is our mind, our will, and our emotion, the part of us that thinks and feels and plans. The body of man, the third part, is this flesh. It's this thing, this, this medium that is an expression of the spirit and the soul in the physical realm, in the world. Well, prior to the sinful fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God and man walked in fellowship in the spirit. There was a link between the spirit of God and the spirit of man, and they walked in beautiful fellowship. God, the, the Spirit, controlled the mind of man. He was governed by his mind. And his body was more or less immaterial. It existed, but it was an afterthought. I like to think of it as like my big toe. You know, when's the last time you thought about your big toe? Probably the last time you had a hole in your sock or your stocking, right? You know, or, or the last time your spouse told you that your feet stink, you know? <laughs> But otherwise, we don't really think about our, our big toe. It just kind of is there. We take care of it. It, it. It's a real thing. We clip the nail when we need to. We clean it, hopefully daily, you know, when we wash, you know. But we don't, like, think about it during the day. Like, wow, you know, what does my big toe want to do? How can I pamper my big toe? You know, it's just an afterthought, you know. And man in his pre-fallen condition, that was the flesh. He had to eat. He had physical needs and things that needed to be attended to. But it didn't control his mind. It was an afterthought. His mind was filled with God. He walked with God in contentment and in spiritual fellowship. But after the fall, the spirit of man died. And his fellowship with God was broken. And at that point, man became inverted. And the flesh became uppermost. Now notice, if man is spirit, soul, and body... And the spirit dies, now he's body, soul, and he's spiritually dead. And in both models, the mind, the soul, the emotions, and the will is in the middle. 
In one, the spirit is controlling the mind, dominating the mind. But after the fall, now the flesh is dominating the mind. It's in control of the mind. And God doesn't relate to the fallen flesh. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the flesh of man is enmity with God. The Bible says that if the flesh controls our mind, that we're at enmity with God. We're, we've become on the wrong side of him. We've become his enemies when our flesh is controlling our mind. We're constantly thinking about what Jesus said. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to go? When is my next vacation? What am I going to do after the study? What am I going to watch on TV? How am I going to entertain myself? All of that is the flesh. Nothing necessarily inherently sinful, but it's a state of being where we're being controlled by the desires of the body. And what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 is that to live in that state is to live in spiritual deadness, it's to be at enmity with God, and it's to be in a place where we cannot please Him. He says all those things in Romans 8, 5 through 8. You can read it and see. And therefore, what God calls us to when we come into a relationship with Him is that we mortify or crucify the deeds of the body, and we allow now the Spirit to be regenerated, and we walk with Him, and we allow the Spirit of God to control our minds. And we allow him to make the body an afterthought again. And that's what circumcision was a sign of in the life of the believer. It was a sign of an inward work of the flesh being crucified. And that's what God was calling Abram into in this. Is if you're going to be my covenant people, if you're going to realize the purpose for which I've made you, if you're going to walk in relationship and in fellowship with me, if you're going to inherit all that I have for you, and if I am ultimately one day going to come to that place in your heart where you say you are my God, then it is an essential thing that you possess a consecrated life wherein the flesh is cut off. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. As we walk with God and allow Him to fill our lives, He moves the Spirit out. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says that they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. And that is what we are called to do, even as it was that Abraham was called to do in this whole mark of circumcision, the mark of a consecrated life. Now understand that circumcision did not save Abram, nor did it save his descendants. The Jews made it that. Well, if you want to be saved, then you've got to be circumcised. No, 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 no. Circumcision was of the heart, not in the body. Paul says that in Romans chapter 2. It's chapter 2 of Romans verses 28 and 29. And just listen to what he says. He says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What circumcision represents is a work of God in the heart, in the secret place, the place that no one else can see. See, they didn't go around and say, are you uh, circumcised? Prove it. They didn't do that in ancient Israel. 
it was largely between man and God if he was truly circumcised, just as it is with you and I. See, I don't know just by your presence here or by looking at you or even by talking with you if you truly are consecrated in your heart to him. Only you know that. And maybe those that are closest to you can discern it. But have our hearts really been consecrated unto him? It's an essential part if we're going to see God's work performed in our lives and brought to its complete and full expression. Notice in verse 14 the severity of it. He says that the uncircumcised child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. God is dead serious about the removal of our flesh and the consecration of our life to him. He does not relate to our flesh. He says it's enmity. He says it cannot please him. And he gives us the equipment and the ability to see it crucified and cut off. But we're to walk in that consecration before him. Notice as the text moves on in verse uh, 15 and on through the end, just the kind of the closure of things in the covenant. Notice Abram's response and interaction to this in verse 15. It says that God said unto Abram, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Same thing, that fifth letter, the breath, <laughs> put in her name as well. Shall her name be. And I will bless her and give you a son also from her. Yea, and I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said, In his heart shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Now, notice, it says that he said this in his heart. So these things don't come out of his mouth, but this does. Verse 18. And Abram said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. You mean, God, for, for 13 years I've been living a lie? For 13 years I've been living in the faith and in the belief that Ishmael is the promised son that you promised to me so long ago? And now you're telling me Sarah's going to have a son? Oh, Lord, I'm 100 years old. She's 90 years old. How in the world? I think a part, a small part, maybe a large part of what Abram's saying here to God is, God, really? Again? We're going to have another, another one? We've got to start over? Now? <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> not now. Not now. <laughs> Four years ago. You know, what? Again, Lord? We gotta, we're doing this again? You know, that's a part of it. But I think that the bigger part of Abram's desire in this, not just his love for Ishmael, that's a factor, not just his desire to not raise a new child again at 100 years old. That's probably a part of it as well. But I think the biggest motive behind Abram's prayer here that Ishmael might live before him is that is he's just simply saying, as we probably would, God, is there any way that all this can happen without things having to change all that much? I mean, God, can't we just have the status quo I mean, can't I just go back to work tomorrow? And can't things just go on and life just go on like it was and you still do all of these things even without all this other complication? Can we just do it that way? God's reply to Abram is no. God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear a son indeed and you will call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Abram, you need to understand something in all of this is that if you're going to go to the place that I want to lead you to, and if your life is going to become that for which I've destined your life to become, then there needs to be change within your life. 
And not only that, Abram, but there are other people in your life and the things that you do and that I do and that you allow me to do in your life will directly affect and have a bearing upon them as well. And that you need to submit to my will for your life for the sake of your spouse in this as well. For there's another person that's waiting upon my promise as well. And if you don't go forward in my plan, then she doesn't go forward in my plan either. And I believe this might be a word to some of you here tonight. It would be so much easier for us to just keep going in our life the way that we want and for God to just do everything that He wants to do just the way things are. But God calls us to deeper waters, greater commitment, a more pure consecration unto Him for our sake and also for the sake of what He's doing in the lives of the people around us. Abram, it's not just about you. It's about her. It's about Isaac. It's about my plan and your descendants. Concerning Ishmael, verse 20, he says, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with Abram, and God went up from Abram. Now watch the conclusion. I love this. It says that Abraham then took Ishmael his son and all that were born in his house and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the self-same day as God had said unto him. Now, can you imagine what it was like for Abraham to come home from this encounter? Family meeting. <laughs> but what's remarkable is that they all went along with it. As Abram explained, and he said, not one jumped ship. But everyone said, Abram, we're in. If God spoke, and this is what he wants, your God is our God, and we'll go along. But what's even more remarkable than that is the timing. Notice what it says. It says that it was the self-same day. That Abram replied, responded, and obeyed when God spoke. He didn't delay or put it off. And Abram was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the self-same day was Abram circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house born in the house and bought with his money, the money of the stranger, they were circumcised with him. So the summation of the Abrahamic covenant that's here. God says, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. My purpose for your life, your experience in this life, the inheritance that I have for you in the land, and the access that you have to me. And as for you, Abram, your part in all of this is that you're to know me as El Shaddai, as Almighty God. You're to walk in relationship with me in a consistent, steady, moment-by-moment -moment fellowship with myself. You're to be committed to me and to my call, and you're to strive for perfection, ever pressing towards the mark of the high calling of God. And that you're to be consecrated in the cutting off of your flesh, the foreskin of the heart, your devotion to me being pure. That's your part in this covenant, Abraham. As we close tonight, I ask you this question. The musicians can come. What are you going to do with this study tonight? What are you going to do with the things that God has spoken and the things that He's revealed of His will concerning each of us individually?
Is this just going to become another study, another thing that we file away? Okay, I heard another page. It went long again. Someday I'll read it or revisit it, or at least I know something a little bit more about circumcision, and you know, we file it away in the whole thing. Notice what it says concerning Abram's response to God. It says, in the self-same day, Abram responded to the things that God spoke to him. Understand, Christian, that when God deals with his people, he deals with them in the now. It's always in the now. When Jesus came walking on water in the third watch of the night and the disciples were toiling in the boat, it says that Jesus made like he would go by. He was going to pass right by them that night. Had it not been for Peter that said, Lord, is that you? If it is, then bid me to come out. And then, of course, things happened and Peter walked on water. But God was going to walk by had they missed the moment. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, speaking by the Spirit of God and quoting his ways from the Old Testament, he said that today is the day of salvation. That today, if you will hear his voice, then harden not your hearts like they did in the, in the, in the days of provocation. In the ministry of Jesus, we read that while he was in the synagogue of Capernaum, it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. The potential was there for lives to be changed. But because they met him with criticism instead of faith, those that came in that day sick left that day sick because they missed out on what God wanted to do right then. And my fear tonight for those of us that have sat through this study is that there are some here in this place that tonight that you don't know God. You don't know Him as El Shaddai. You might know that He is a God. You might be able to quote Him. You might say that He's the God of the Bible and say things about Him, but you don't know Him. He's not your God. There's never been a place where you've come into a relationship with Him. In Psalm 103, verse 7, it says that God made His acts known unto the children of Israel, but his ways he made known unto Moses. There was a whole nation of people that knew who he was. Oh, I know who God is. I know what he does. He opened up the Red Sea. He multiplies loaves and fishes. He can walk on water. He created the universe. I know his acts. But the difference between all of them and Moses is that it says concerning Moses that Moses knew his ways. In other words, Moses could tell you why he did those things. Moses knew him. And I ask you tonight, do you know him? Do you know him? Are you walking and living in the promises and the purposes that he has for your life? Or are you living as an orphan, hiding little nuggets in your bed, thinking, maybe God, I can just make it through until the rapture, and becoming a spectator in your own life and missing out on what he has? Do you know him tonight? In the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God wants you to know him. To some of you that are here tonight, and you're living the unsurrendered, inconsistent, non-committed, uncircumcised life before God. You might know Him in the sense that you're born again and your name is written in heaven. But you have yet to realize that God has a purpose and a will and something for your life that is unique to you and that is exceeding fruitful, way beyond anything that you can imagine or think for yourself. But because you're content with the status quo, there's those that are skiing in the peaks and you're sitting in the lodge. You're watching while others enjoy, but you yourself aren't embracing and experiencing. God's will for you is this. He's saying, listen, I am Almighty God. Walk before me. Look at the potential of what's there. Cut off the foreskin of your heart. 
and get serious with your purpose and my purpose for your life. If you're here tonight and you know God and you're not walking in His specific calling and experiencing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the rejoicing and enjoyment of your life and inheriting the land and walking with Him as God, then what you are tonight is that you are a supporting cast member of the movie of your life. You're going to get to heaven and you're going to see in the video shelf of God's library your name written on a DVD and it's a long one. Way longer than this message. And you're going to put it in the player and you're going to watch it. And you're going to see someone else walking in the heights and in the depths of what God had ordained for you and you'll be off doing what you did. Whatever God had for you, but you were a really good golfer. You made it to the top. But it's not what God made you for. Oh, that we would respond. Oh, that we, like Abraham, would say, God, where is it in my life that I went off course? Or that I stopped believing you or taking you at your word? Or I was content with the bunny hill, or not even to get the skis on at all, but just to sit and and just make it through, God, if I could just make it through. That's not His will. Oh, that we would say, God, today. Today is the day, Lord, that I'll walk in faith. Today is the day that I, like Abraham, will fall on my face before you as you tell me your name is El Shaddai. God Almighty, that you're the one that will carry me through. And I will walk with you. And I will know you. And Lord, whatever you have to do to consecrate and cut off this flesh, Lord, may it be done. Today, Lord, is the day of salvation. As the musicians close in just a minute, invite you, give you opportunity, maybe you want to just come. Maybe tonight to lay something at the altar and say, God, I've come off course. Or I feel like I'm watching from a distance, but God, I want my life. He wants to give it to you more than you want it. Will you take him at his will and at his word? Father, we thank you tonight for this message that you've given. We thank you for the shadows that we can see through it into the days of our own lives. And we would ask you, Lord, that you would move upon hearts here right now, that tonight, Lord, today would be the day that some would give their lives to you in salvation, that others would stand up, Lord, from the foolishness of peripheral things and embrace what you have for eternal things. Oh, God, move in us. Call many, call many tonight many tonight, we ask. Let's stand together. I invite you if you want to spend some time at the altar tonight. The Lord is here. He will not pass by.